Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 13, as we wrap up Missions Month this morning. If you found your place, Matthew 13, stand with me if you would, out of honor for God's Word. This is a lengthy passage of Scripture, and I'm going to preach the entire thing, but not in, not in, a, in, a, in, a, in a granular way, and we're not going to read the whole thing uh, this morning. So I'm going to invite you to read along with me, and I'll tell you where to read. So we're going to start our reading in verse 1. The Bible says, The same day went Jesus out of the house, and He sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto Him, so that He went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And He spake many things unto them in parables. And then He begins to speak in parables. And after the first one, verse 10, the disciples came. So look there, verse 10 with me. And they said unto Him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And this is His answer. He said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It is not given. And we're going to come back in just a moment and define what the mysteries are of the kingdom of heaven. He says, them is not given. And so he's using parables to help translate that truth. Look at verse 53 with me. You have to turn a page or two or scroll down a little bit. Page 50, verse 53. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he's, he's done speaking. He departed thence. And when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, what, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. And Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And there's a consequence to that. And it's a stiff consequence. And, and to me, this is a gut wrenching, agonizing conclusion to this passage of Scripture. And verse 58 says, and he did not many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Let's pray today. Lord, thank you for your word, the music that's been sung. Father, thank you that the efforts we give uh, to touching other people's lives, to loving them, uh, Lord, to giving in silence and not receiving recognition for it, Lord, that you're keeping track. Uh, and, and there will be... Um, a benefit to that that's incalculable one day. Lord, it's not just about the dollars we give. It's the heart behind them, the service and the love extended. And so, Lord, I pray today that you just impress once again this thought on our hearts about giving to missions, participating, and Lord, valuing the salvation of other souls. And not just their salvation, but their growth in you and the part we play in that. So I pray that you'd speak to us, help communicate these thoughts to each heart um, and the application that maybe each of us needs in different ways. Would your Holy Spirit speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Bible says in this passage that Jesus is teaching by the seaside. Historians say that they believe he was in a boat as he spoke, which is kind of neat. So I'm on a platform today, but here he is, and he's on a boat, and they say he would have been in a cove that would have been shaped like a horseshoe. 
So it kind of turned and they said that historians say that sound would have bounced off of the walls and it would have made it like an amphitheater where sound would have just gone out for hundreds and hundreds of feet. Some people say 300 feet. The Bible says that great multitudes were gathered there. And so we're thinking probably thousands of people and you can fill in the blanks here. I'm not sure that the number of people matters as much. Historians uh, in local tradition call this discourse the cove of the parables because the Lord would use parables for these disciples. He had already been using them, but he was using them again to teach and help translate a truth. And the word parable literally means to cast alongside. It's a story or a comparison that's put alongside a truth to help make it more relatable. And on this day, Jesus was going to use seven back-to-back parables. Now, some of them were longer, some of them were shorter. Each parable, in fact, each part of each parable deserves its own discourse, deserves its own study, and its own sermon. And and I won't do that to you this morning, but I want to make this point that these weren't just ordinary parables. So sometimes the Lord would use parables to help translate a truth, but He says specifically of these parables in verse 11, if you look there with me, He says they are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now in the New Testament, a mystery was a truth that was only understood, now get this, through divine intervention. So here might be a truth or principle, and let's just say it's scientific. And we would look at that and say, well, we can all in some level understand that truth or that mystery today. But in the New Testament, in this word that Jesus is using, he is saying, here's a truth And apart from God and His Holy Spirit making it clear to this individual, you're never going to understand it. Now you might hear it, you might observe it, you might watch it, you might even be able to recite it yourself, but you can't understand it apart from the Holy Spirit of God coming down and illuminating your heart and mind. It's a mystery. It's referred to as some as this, sacred secrets. So here, here, here's this truth, here's this principle, and a lost man might understand it or, 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 or certainly be able to regurgitate it or write about it or think about it, but he doesn't understand it because it's, it's revealed through the divine nature of God. It's a sacred secret of the Holy Spirit, and only he reveals this truth to the heart of an individual. Well, Jesus said it's a mystery. These parables were mysteries, specifically of what? Well, of the kingdom of heaven. What's a kingdom? Well, we understand this. We've all taken history classes. It's a country. It's a state. It's a territory that's ruled maybe by a queen or a king. Certainly in this era of human history, that would have been the case. Well, what's heaven? Well, it's the seat of order of things eternal and consummately perfect where God dwells and other beings are. The kingdom of heaven is what we don't see. We see the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said all throughout his earthly ministry, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer on Wednesday nights and we've studied the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, I didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He said, I came to establish the kingdom of heaven. You don't see it, but you will one day. And it's it's significantly far more important than anything we see today in our world. In any kingdom of earth that passes away, the kingdom of heaven is eternal, and Jesus came to establish it in the hearts and minds of believers. And the expansion of the kingdom of heaven was always central to Jesus' teaching. 
It was why he came. He didn't come to set up a earthly kingdom. He didn't come to set up a political party. He didn't come to set up an army. He said, no, no, no. Far more important than any of those things, I came to establish my kingdom. And uh, he established a beachhead on a spiritual front, if you will. And he came to defeat sin. He came to defeat hell. He came to defeat the grave. And he did all of those things. And he saves, as we sang a moment ago, in a word. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so, in these parables, Jesus explains the course or the, uh, of the gospel that's in the world today. And there are seven parables, and they're back to back. And the first one he gives is the parable of a sower. In verses 24 and 23, and he describes how the kingdom begins. It begins with the preaching of the word of God. The planting of seed in the hearts and minds of people. And he, he uses his message and he, he says it's like a farmer that goes out and plants seed. And so this morning, we're doing that to some degree. And so here's, these, here's the Bible and, and, and we're doing our best to understand it and to, and to and understand what Jesus specifically said and his word. And so here's the seed of the word of God and it, it gets cast out this morning and it's going to land in, in different hearts. And and Jesus explains that. There's some hearts here today that are hard. There's some hearts that are soft. There's some hearts that are rocky. There's some hearts that are sleepy today, right? But the seed falls in different places. And and, and he says this is how the Word of God is. And people respond differently to the Word of God based on the condition of their heart. He talks about the parable of the weeds and the tares. And the idea is that there are genuine and real Christians and then there are those, they look the part, they sound the part, they even say better words than maybe a Christian would say. He says, but they're not really a Christian. They're not really serving the Lord. They don't really know Him. They don't really love Him. They just look that part. And he, he talks about this. Christians that don't really love the Lord. They don't really love people. He talks about the parable of the mustard seed as it relates to the kingdom of heaven. The mustard seed was small. It was insignificant. It was hard to see. But yet it would grow up to be a large, the largest of plants in a garden. And Jesus was simply saying the kingdom of heaven has insignificant beginnings, but it will grow and produce incredible results. He talks about the parable of the leaven or the yeast. He compares that, uh, the kingdom of heaven, to leaven. It's hidden in flour. Here's flour and you've got this yeast or this leaven in it. And you don't see it. But man, you put a little bit in and you can have a feast's worth of bread because of that little addition. He talks about the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. And these are two shorter parables. But he talks about the inestimable worth of the kingdom of heaven. It's so important. It's more, it's more worthy than any treasure on earth. It's so significant. He talks about the parable of the net. It's about a fishing net. And when you cast out a fishing net, and these people would have understood this in a way perhaps even we would not. And you're going to catch all sorts of fish. And he says, what do the fishermen do? Well, they go through the fishing net and they pull out the good fish and they pull out the bad fish and the bad fish get discarded and the good fish get saved. And Jesus said, at the end of time, my father's coming back. And it's like everybody's going to be pulled into this net. And he's like, the bad fish are going to get cast out. The good fish are going to be saved aside. And so he's using these truths. These are things that these people would have understood in an intimate way. This was their world. This was their culture. This was their history. If he were preaching to us today, he would probably be using different illustrations. But he was helping them understand the significance of the kingdom of heaven. 
why he came. It was so important to him. It was a mystery he came to make known to those who had have ears to hear. And that was a phrase he would use many times. And so he's done. And the clock strikes 11.30 for him. And he gets in the boat and they go away. And there's another incident between this and what happens here. It's revealed in another passage of Scripture. But he comes to his hometown. He goes across the sea. And he's home. Ever been on vacation before and you, you're, you're, you cross that line back into Oklahoma? You're like, that's home. And this is the Lord. He's been away. He's been ministering. He's been teaching. He's been working. And he comes home. These are his people. These are people that know him. And they've known him for a long time. And presumably they love him. They know his family. They know all about him. And they know about him in a personal way. They, 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 they know what his face looks like. What his breath smells like. The kind of clothes he wears. They knew where he grew up. They knew his siblings. He comes home. And so in this verse 54, it says this, he taught them in their synagogue. Now, let me just point something out because it's important for us understanding what's about to take place. The word them is the Greek word autos. And you probably don't want to know all this, but Klotz and Ad and Divar and Vanek and other scholars, okay, um, this is what they say about this specific word. It says, in itself, the word them in this verse 54, it signifies nothing more than again applied to what has either been previously mentioned or when the whole discourse is looked at, it must necessarily be supplied. So he says he taught them, and it wasn't that he was teaching the people, it was applying to his whole discourse before. What was he doing? He was preaching his message a second time. You ever heard a preacher do that before? Okay, here's biblical evidence that you should preach a message a second time, right? (laughs) I've never done that. (laughs) Okay. So he taught them. He taught about the kingdom of heaven again. Now, whether he used every single seven parables or not, I don't know. But he very well may could have. Because that's what the Bible says. He taught them. He taught the parables. Now to his hometown. So disciples have already heard this once. And maybe they've heard it multiple times. And they're listening to them. He's preaching the same message again. The kingdom of heaven to Jesus, it was everything. And so he's using parable after parable after parable after parable to translate these truths to the hearts and minds of people. Now, we we know so much more about Jesus than they did. We know so much more about God's plan than these people did. But this is all still new to them. And they're trying to absorb it. And we don't know exactly what the response was to the the parables in the cove as he preached to those people. But the Bible does give us the response of these people. As he finishes this sermon, as he tells these stories, as he pours out his heart to them, what's their response? Well, this is a key question for us to lean into this morning. Because when presented with information, we all have to make a response. We can do nothing. And oftentimes we do that. We can reject, we can embrace, but we have to respond. And so Jesus makes a case for the kingdom of heaven. He lays out the the truth. He uses stories 
that were vivid and beautiful to illustrate it. He invites them to respond. And they did. They did respond. And here was their response. The Bible says that they were astonished. Ever had somebody tell you something before and you go, what? You know, or you said a story and you said something and you, what? What? Are you kidding me? Astonishment, right? Astonishment can be really good. Like, wow. Or it can be like this. What? You kidding me? So they're astonished. So this is the word we read. And the idea of the word is simply this, to confound with sudden passion. So it's eliciting this response in them that's a passionate response. This isn't just placid. This isn't like, ah, we'll think about it. This isn't, this is, this is a passionate reply to his message. They were stunned. And then they begin to ask multiple questions, and these aren't friendly. This is the, these are the questions go, is not this the carpenter's son? Okay, that was, that was, hey, in a, in a, in a, in a caste system, you're down at the bottom, buddy. Like, you got no money, you got no power, you got no influence. You're the carpenter's son. Like, come on. Who do you think you are? Is not his mother called Mary? Like, he has a mama and we know her. His brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? Okay, so this is astonishment. It's also mocking. It's like, come on, man, give me a break. And just to make sure we understand what's taking place here, the author writes, and they were offended in him. It means they were displeased. More than that, they were indignant. Who do you think you are? They rejected him. Now listen, but not without impact to their personal lives. Because here's verse 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There is a correlation that we see again and again and again and again and again throughout Scripture between belief and works. Belief and works. And, it, and they work interchangeably between us and God. James 2.26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You might say you have faith, but I'm not seeing evidence of it. And if there's no evidence of faith, then it's dead faith. Faith and, and works, it goes hand in hand. This, this idea of belief and works. Our faith leads to our works. That's what James is saying. If you believe in God, then, then act like it. Like work it out. Okay, our faith leads to our works, but that's not all. Our faith also leads to his works. Now that's, a, now that's a little different. Now I might prove to God through my, through, through my works that I have faith in Him. But God says, if you have faith in me and believe in me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to work in your life too. So there's this correlation between the two. Between belief and works. And when there's no belief, there's no works from Him. And when there is, there's works from Him. This works in multiple ways. And it has a incredible impact in our lives and in our church. Verse 58 again, he did not mighty works there because they didn't believe. 
Belief and works, they go hand in hand. What kind of works did Jesus mean? What kind of works was he doing? Well, if I was to ask a children's class this morning, well, they would say things like this. Um, doors? No, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> they would say things like this. Well, he was healing people. Right? Is that a work? It's pretty cool work. A man who's been blind his whole life, Jesus rubs some spit and mud on his eyes and he can see again? That's pretty cool. Man who's crippled and lame, can't walk. He, Jesus touches him and, he, and, he, and he's healed. A uh, you know, woman with an issue and, and, and Christ, she touches the hem of his garment, doesn't even touch him, and she's healed. Time and time again, we, we see him doing these incredible miracles like making food, out of a, a lot of food out of a little bit of food. Pretty cool. He was doing a lot of works. But more important than all those incredible stories we love about Jesus far more important than any physical malady that he healed was the hearts he was healing. Isaiah said he came to bring light into darkness. He was giving hope for eternity and he came to establish that truth in our hearts that what happens beyond this life matters so much more than what happens in it. And so he is, the works he was doing was healing hearts. He was giving hope in the midst of darkness. He brought life and light. He brought a way out of hell and into heaven and in the presence of God through his blood. That's what he was doing. Those were the mighty works. Changed hearts. Changed eternities. But this is so important. They had no belief. Didn't believe him. So he did no works. A question today, what kind of works do you want the Lord to do in your life? I assume you have a prayer list. And if you don't, like my children, you may just have a wish list, right? Might be on your, I mean, everybody's got an Amazon wish list. Not everybody, I suppose, but a lot of people do. Things you've hearted online, tabs you've saved, things you want. Maybe it's not online, but maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an item, it could be a person you need fixed. What's on your prayer list? What's on your wish list? What are the things to you, if we cut through all of that materialism, what are the things that really matter to you? Like big time, like what's really, really significant here? And I think at the top of the list would be this. I want to be sure I'm saved. That's a big deal to me. It should be a big deal to you. Nothing in this life matters if I die and spend eternity in hell. I I just, that terrifies me. When I, you know, I, I was saved as a young child, and I was in, I was in about fifth grade, I remember, and, and I heard my teacher teaching one day on hell, and I, I thought I was saved, and as I look back, I think I was saved, but I wasn't sure, and I was so scared of going to hell, I was like, Jesus, save me again. You know, I need, I need to know that's not where I'm going. It's a big deal. I need to know I'm saved. I need to know that eternity is secure. You know, as I got married and had children... I wanted my children to be saved. It became the top prayer request in my life. Like, Lord, I, I brought these little ones into the world. 
And God, I don't, I don't even want to bring them into the world. I don't even want to have them if they won't get saved and, and know you as Savior and spend eternity in heaven with you. Lord, save my children. It's the most important thing in my life that my kids be saved. I need them to know Jesus. Salvation of those that we love. When I was a boy, my, my grandfather wasn't saved. My dad's dad. And every meal we would be praying every single day, every night, three times a day. My dad would sometimes break down in tears. God save my dad. And I was 18 years old. And I was out on our front porch shooting baskets one day. I was a senior in high school. And dad comes out and he's just bawling. I said, what's going on, dad? He says, grandpa, my dad. He just called me, and he got saved. It's such a big deal to him. It's a big deal to me. What's the most important thing in life? It was salvation. When you boil it down, this is what Jesus came to establish, the kingdom of heaven and its growth. Your salvation. But not just your salvation. The salvation of other people, too. It's important that you know you're saved. But if you've got that and you're okay to just live in that condition of I'm saved and you don't care about the salvation of others and you have no one that you're praying for and no one that you're investing in and no one that you're sharing your faith with, shame on you. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of heaven and gave his lifeblood for you and he asks us to share it with other people. This is his plan. And all of these parables point to the importance of being part of the kingdom of heaven. Don't be a weed. Don't be a tear. Don't be a dead fish. How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, through belief. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart. Now, here's that word again. Belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead. My belief in Jesus, my confession of him, my acknowledgement of my sin and need of him. I believe. What's he do? He works. Thou shalt be saved. Belief and works, the two go hand in hand. Our belief causes him to work. But Jesus isn't just asking for these individuals to believe in him for salvation. He was asking them to believe in his kingdom. He was asking his disciples as they heard this message over and over again and illustrated in different ways. He was asking them for belief. He was asking them for buy-in. And what does that do? Releases him to work. Well, how does the Lord know if we believe? Well, he just knows, brother. And that's true. But our belief is worked out in our lives. Faith without works is dead. There's a correlation between faith and works. How do we express our belief in God's kingdoms, in God's kingdom? One of the primary ways and the way that Jesus spoke about more than any other way is through our giving. Like he spoke about money more than any other thing. Besides the kingdom of heaven. Because he knows our attachment to it. Like, like subtract whatever agenda you might think I have this morning and just deal with Jesus. This is so important to him. Our giving is a significant part of our works. Our dollars to his kingdom. Perhaps, perhaps more than any other thing. Say, I believe, Lord. I believe. I'm going to give because I believe. It's incredibly important. Dollars, however, aren't the best metric for determining belief. As a church, 
and I think John said he mentioned this last Sunday, but last year we gave over half a million dollars to missions, last fiscal budget year. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's a big number. There are a lot of people here who give, and that enables us to do some incredible things around the world. We're able to support our missionaries, but we're also able to help with missions projects. Um, in just this last month, on top of the support that we give out monthly to our missionaries, um, we were able to pay down the remaining $10,000 that Eustace Karayuki needed in Kenya to secure his property. Now he still has to put a building on it, but he now fully has the $200,000 he needed to purchase the property, and we were able to give that to him. We gave $10,000 to West Gazaway for a church plant. When he came through, if you'll remember, a few weeks ago, and he was a missionary to Egypt, and he stood up here and talked about the three different churches he has. And it's not like, you know, some missionaries come through, well, there's no Baptist church in this area. Like, there's no churches in that area. <laughs> like, there's no, there's no presence of Christ. There's no light. And he's got three going simultaneously right now. We were able to give $10,000 to help with the costs of those properties. We gave several thousand dollars for a leaking roof project to the Tylers in Romania. Had a storm come through and destroy part of their church building. We took on for support the Hedermans to Peru, if you'll remember them. And the night that he was here, he was talking about the startup costs that he needed. And our deacons decided and gave him several thousand dollars towards the startup costs. About two weeks ago, he texted me, said they already found a property in downtown Lima, and they've already got it secure. They've already started services. The guy's a mover and a shaker. We took on them and Charity Gimire to Nepal as new missionaries out of our church because of our budget. Humanly speaking, the amount of money we get to these people on the receiving end, it matters. Okay, let me ask this question. How much does the number in and of itself really matter to God? So does God reward and do mighty works because of a certain numbers, number of dollars? A few weeks ago, on that Sunday night when the power went out, I never really finished my sermon that night, um, I referenced Atomic Habits, which was a book um, you know, I'd used to illustrate a point. And I've been digesting that book for a few months now. It's, it's just helped me in some different areas of life. I think we have two or three copies left of the bookstore. Chapter 16, he says, how to stick with good habits every day. And I'm going to use another illustration from the book. It's just helpful to illustrate this truth. It's my own little parable, if you will, all right? He, he talks about the importance of tracking habits in our lives. It's a powerful thought. And the sermon's not about that, so you have to read the book if you want to capture that. But, but he says this about tracking habits. The hard thing about tracking a habit, if we want to establish something good in our life that we do over and over again, is you have to use a metric. Okay? But then he says this, and, and, I, and I quote from James Clear, the author. He said, the dark side of tracking a particular behavior is that we become driven by the number rather than the purpose behind it. Okay, so let me give you a few illustrations. We can focus on working more hours at work. Say, I need to put in more time. But what we can sometimes do is we put in more hours and we get less meaningful work done. So what really matters? Well, meaningful work does. We can put in more hours. It doesn't mean we're getting the job done. We can focus maybe for some on getting 10,000 steps in a day rather than on being healthy. So when I hit 10,000 steps, because that's my daily goal, my watch buzzes, bzzz, and I got that bam, I see a couple nod, heads nodding here. Okay, but then if I go and I eat whatever I want to eat, or do whatever else I want to do, those 10,000 steps mean nothing, because the goal is to be healthier. Not necessarily hit 10,000 steps, that metric 
becomes a problem for me. We teach for standardized tests in school, and we forget to encourage learning, curiosity, critical thinking is lost. We focus sometimes on be, looking nice at church, and I, and I think that's an important thing. There's a lot of reasons for that. We, we, we will oftentimes act the way we're dressed, but not always. So we sometimes can focus on looking nice, but we're not being nice, and that's a problem. So if we choose the wrong measurement, we get the wrong behavior. There's a law that economists use, it's called Goodhart's Law, and that law states this, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So measurement's only as good as, as when it guides you and it doesn't consume you. Okay, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to quote from James Clear one, once more, so forgive me. But I think this helps illustrate the truth and I'm going somewhere. He says, in our data-driven world, we tend to overvalue numbers and undervalue anything ephemeral, which means short soft and difficult to quantify. We mistakenly think the factors we can measure are the only factors that exist. But just because you can measure something doesn't mean it's the most important thing. And just because you can't measure something doesn't mean it's not important at all. Have you ever weighed yourself and the numbers on the scale just won't move and you're trying really hard? Okay, that's a metric. But what are you really trying to achieve? Well, I want to feel better. And I want to look better. And, 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 and I, I just, the number of the scale is just not moving. But you may start to notice things that the numbers don't tell. Things like you're getting up earlier and you do feel better. Your skin looks healthier. See, all of these are perhaps much, much more important than a number on a scale. Number on a scale is just one small part of the equation of health, but it doesn't tell the story. And sometimes we use the wrong metrics. How does this relate to missions? Okay, today we're gonna, just a few minutes, we're gonna submit numbers. Do the matters number? Well, to those that receive them, yes. But in the overall system of God's economy and God's kingdom, the song that Laura sang today, they're only a small piece of the feedback system. Most important and more important than the dollars are the heart behind them. That's what God measures. That's what God's looking at. And if we as a church say we give, like, you know, let me tell you about my church. We give over a half a million dollars to missions. And that might mean absolutely nothing. In heaven, and it may mean nothing to God. Because what He cares about is our heart. He cares about why you're giving it. Do you understand the mission? Do you understand why it's important? Do you understand that salvation of other people is of highest value to God? It's His wish list, and it should be ours too. Don't keep salvation to yourself. Eastland needs to be a church with people who have hearts to give. Our hearts need to be stirred when we talk about lost souls. Outreach at Eastland's not a program. When we talk about tracks, we're not talking about pieces of paper. We're talking about souls. 
I'm talking about a heartbeat. We need to get the sacred secret, the mystery of the kingdom, out to all those that will hear it. And some won't, but some will. Why? Well, here's the reason. So his mighty works can be done. I hate verse 58. I hate it. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I hate it for the people in his hometown. I hate it for the people that became too familiar with who he was. And I hate it that if we're not careful, that could be said of us. He did not many mighty works at Eastland Baptist Church. Yeah, they gave a lot of money to missions, or yeah, they did whatever, but they didn't believe. There was no belief. There's no real buy-in. Didn't capture the mission in the heart of God. I think God has done and is doing some mighty works at Eastland. But there's no guarantee that He's going to continue to do so. And if we want God to work in our lives, if we want Him to work in our church, and I do, if we want to see God's hand at work in the world, it won't re be reported on CNN and Fox. It's not going to be there. But it's, He's working. If we want to see that and be part of that, then we're going to have to prove to Him through our hearts and through our giving that we believe in Him. We believe in His kingdom. We believe in His mission. I'm not asking this morning to hurt yourself financially, but I am asking you to be a part of what God's doing around the world. We need your tithes and offerings to allow us to do the work here. It's a big deal what we do right here in Tulsa. This is light and darkness. But your designated missions dollars allow us to do more than that and exponentially expand beyond these, world, these walls what God might do um, in our world.